Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temi, and I'm joined via the wonders of the internet by Andy Leonetti. Hi, Happy New Year. <laughs> Thank you. And we also have Baby Metha. Happy New Year, y'all. We had a great little break. We've got all kinds of fun stuff that we want to talk about this year. And we're kicking things off by, I guess, using our work to talk about work. It's probably because we're like, haven't worked. We have not labored for some time for the holidays. Yeah. And in the last few years, we've seen a lot of changes to the way many people work. For example, on this show, we went from recording in the studio in early 2020 to doing nearly two years of episodes at home. And... As employers are kind of figuring out when and how to bring people back to the office, they're also probably thinking about what the new year might bring in labor and employment law. So today we're going to talk about three big issues for employers and workers, a minimum wage, worker classification, and overtime. And we'll be taking a look at the rule changes we saw under the Trump administration, as well as some of the Obama-era policies that the Biden administration has sort of signaled that they're going to return to. So before we get into kind of the nitty-gritty of things, a lot of this has to do with the Federal Labor Standards Act. So let's go over that real quick. We'll try to make it not too boring. I'll leave that to you, Vedahi. You can make it fun, right? (laughs) Uh, I don't know about that, but... The FLSA, uh, as it's referred to, the Fair Labor Standards Act, was enacted by... Oh, too late. I already (laughs) fell asleep. Oh, man. Come on, Andy. We lost him 30 seconds in. Gotta do better than that. FDR, though. FDR, you love him, Andy. Come on. I do. I do. Yeah, he he was the guy in in 38. um, After, you know, years of depression, economic hardship across the nation, he enacted the Fair Labor Standards Act. It's been amended a lot of times since, but briefly, it set up the standard for things like minimum wage and overtime pay, and it affects most private and public employees today. It affects all employees involved in interstate commerce, which as we know in the legal world is a really broad definition. Firms that do uh, more than a certain amount in business annually, like 500,000 are usually covered. Some businesses are covered no matter how much they earn, like government agencies, hospitals, um, people, uh, institutions that take care of the sick, uh, schools, things like that. But the FLSA is, we will be coming back to that act many times in this podcast. So I want to set that up. I promise it'll still be kind of fun, right? Right? Or did are we throwing fun out the window in 2022? Yeah, I mean, well, no. <laughs> new, Hey, new year, new year. And a lot of people are getting paid. Yes. Um, so <laughs> um, talk about minimum wage. This is new, 2022 is actually going to be a record-setting year, according to the National Employment Law Project. Uh, 25 states and 56 municipalities are going to raise their minimum wages by the end of the year. This is That is a record. In many cases, these are states and cities that have already passed laws mandating a $15 minimum per hour minimum wage. And these are phased, just part of uh, phased increases toward that. For example, Florida just started their move toward 15 when voters approved a referendum in 2020. Their minimum wage will increase by a dollar every year until 2026. California this year will com- achieve a $15 minimum wage. What inspired all these reforms at the state level since uh, my understanding is that the federal level, it still remains basically the same? Yeah, since 2009, it's been 725. That's crazy. That is correct. Uh, there was just, I think, the power of the grassroots, really, without getting to a political podcast here, <laughs> um, a lot of I th- I think, especially in democratic leaning states and city, especially in cities, 
too, a lot of elected officials kind of got on board with the with the growing bandwagon that that minimum wages were not reflecting rising costs of living. And then in states like where I live, Missouri and Florida, that aren't exactly a liberal uh, hotbed hotbeds of liberalism, <laughs> voters went around mm-hmm. basically the politicians and got got referendums on the ballot and passed them. Raising the minimum wage is just like weed. Weed and raising the minimum wage are insanely popular. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is nuts that despite inflation and and you know people who are salaried employees getting annual adjustments for inflation the minimum wage has not been adjusted for inflation since mm-hmm. over over a decade that's nuts yeah. Correct. One with, you know, everybody knows, I think everybody knows where I stand on most issues. Um, (laughs) And most estimates now that especially after the inflation we've been experiencing since the pandemic started that um, that in many cities, a $15 minimum wage actually wouldn't really reflect a, a fully keeping up of like, say, indexing the federal minimum wage to inflation, it would be closer to $20 an hour at this point. Wow. But doubling it is still obviously a big step. Yep. Um, There are still 20 states where the minimum wage reflects the federal minimum wage, or they have a statutorily lower wage. There was one, Wyoming's minimum wage is $5.15, and Georgia's as well. But employees that are covered by the FLSA must make the federal minimum wage. And of course, that doesn't apply to some worker. Like, I remember when I was a waitress, I got $2.25 an hour. Yes. Mm-hmm. Apparently, you're supposed to get the bulk of your stuff with tips, but mm-hmm. but some some states and some cities like Minneapolis, my former home, uh, just eliminated the division between tipped mm-hmm. and oh, wow. regular minimum wage. So yeah, I think a lot of they, places have done that. When they raise their minimum wage to fifteen dollars, that that applied across the board. And then, so do those previously tipped employees no longer get tips, or? They do still get tips. Um, that would be the dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll also tell our listeners that uh, my PayPal is open for anyone who wants to tip <laughs> me for for the, for these podcasts and my excellent blog posts. Well, I, I'm, honestly, I'm a little mad that I didn't think of that first. Uh, I'm just here we are. kidding. <laughs> So, Andy, have we seen any indication that the federal minimum wage might move? I know we're we're seeing a lot of movement <laughs> in states. Yes. So that's we've seen a lot of movement in states. Um, and that is because, as we were just talking about, the federal minimum wage remains seven dollars and twenty five cents. The Build Back Better proposal, you know, that has been in the news over the last several months and all of the um, internal operatic politics of the Senate Democratic <laughs> caucus did contain a raising of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. It would also end the sub-minimum wage for people with disabilities, which is currently legal in 40 states because... They are because people with disabilities are essentially excluded from FL from a lot of FLSA protections on wages. Yeah, the average hourly rate for a person like uh, for a minimum wage worker for a person with disability is quite lower than seven twenty five. There are ten states that outlaw that, but federally it is it is allowed under the FLSA. Um, and the Build Back Better proposal would eliminate that distinction. And is the rationale for that distinction to be in place like that employers wouldn't be disincentivized to hire people with disabilities because of efficiency concerns or whatever? That is that is correct, and even um, some disability advocate advocates worry that raising the minimum wage 
for those workers would further disincentivize. Without replacing it with some kind of quota. Correct. You know, I'll leave that debate to other people. Um, And whether the Build Back Better bill is going to become law, somebody call Joe Manchin's office and not us. Um, (laughs) Right. There is another big change for the minimum wage coming very soon, which is that we'll cover hundreds of thousands of workers in 2014, President Obama issued an executive order raising the minimum wage for federally contracted workers to $10.10 per hour. And President Trump did not repeal that executive order. The only we'll get we'll get to the specific group of people in a second. Um, President Trump did not repeal that executive order. And in April of last year, President Biden issued a new executive order uh, raising raising that minimum wage for contracted workers to fifteen dollars an hour. Department of Labor published final regulations in the fall, and this will go into effect on January 30th. And by March 30th. 2022, all agencies, all federal agencies will have to implement the minimum wage into new contracts. Agencies also have to implement the higher wage into existing contracts um, when when parties exercise their option to extend contracts, which didn't used to typically be the practice. Um, A lot of these minimum wage raises on federal contracts, they only applied to new contracts, new projects, and, and some of these companies sign contracts that last for decades, you know, and they've been able to avoid those. And so this will index, this will also index the minimum wage to an inflation measure. So after 2022, it it will automatically adjust to reflect cost of living changes. Oh, nice. It will eliminate the tipped minimum wage for federal contractors by 2024. What what does that mean? So if you're, if you're on a federal contract and in a job where you would make tips, they can no longer pay you less because you're making tips. Federal statute allows employers of tipped workers to pay a sub-minimum wage as long as their tips bring their wage up to the level of the minimum wage. So after that's eliminated, there will be no distinction? Correct. And it will ensure a $15 minimum wage for federal contract workers with disabilities. And I always wonder, like, you know, other countries, Europe doesn't do the whole sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, um, but they also have less of a tipping culture than America. And a lot of people argue that customer service is going to get ruined if we eliminate this tipping culture that's so part of American history. And and I just, I don't really know. I don't know what you make of that. Well, I lived abroad for a year. I lived in Paris. And while I did enjoy the lack of, you know, the, the different expectations around tipping, it was nice to know kind of when you'd look at a menu, you'd be like, all right, this is what I'm going to pay today when I dine here. Because also because the mm-hmm. price also includes the tax too. It's yeah. not added on later. I will say service was ranged from indifferent to surly. <laughs> Um, okay, but you were in Paris, Andy. I had the same experience in the UK, though. The UK was very similar. <laughs> to get something, you know, you'd have to kind of raise your hand or get their attention somehow. I did not mind having to do that because I'd rather because I prefer that to someone who is basically always hovering, <laughs> asking me how things are. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that is true. Those those restaurant workers were also paid more. <laughs> I don't know how much, but they but they were paid a, a living wage. And so the other group of workers that this executive order from President Biden and new regulations does cover and bring back into the fold are, I got to get this right, seasonal workers on who work on federal lands for like outfitting companies, 
basically seasonal workers who work at national parks who do like raft tours, guided hikes, ski lift operators, those people who work in a lot of those service sector jobs on federal on federal lands. Maybe like ski resorts or summer country club resort seasonal workers like that too. Would be only on federal land though. Yeah, to federally contracted lands. So like a ski hill somewhere on federal land in Utah, basically where the federal government contracts with the company to run to run the ski operations. That was kind of the one action that President Trump took on minimum wage was that he issued an executive order in 2018 that exempted all of those workers from the Obama minimum wage increase on contracted workers. President Biden's order has now brought those workers back into the fold. That's about 40,000 workers. Although there is, although there is, let me get this right. There is currently litigation pending in Colorado that was just heard in federal court by uh, some Colorado river tour companies asking a federal judge to put an injunction on that. So hang tight tour guides, <laughs> federal land tour guides. Um, the argument there is that these workers and the argument that the Trump administration made was that these workers typically work very irregular schedules. You know, they are seasonal and rely on a lot of overtime for a compressed period of time um, because during the, you know, busy seasons. And so companies are saying, you know, that would essentially require us to pay not just $15 an hour, but $22 an hour or more for a good portion of these hours work. And that would apply to private sector seasonal workers too. But the reason that they didn't apply it to the private sector is just because it's a lot easier to impose on federal government workers, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, just like anything throughout throughout the decades, the federal, the Democratic presidents have raised minimum wages for construction workers who work on federal projects. Um, things like the Davis Bacon Act, which requires which requires projects to pay like the local prevailing wage, and usually like Democratic presidents use. Uh, wage and hour issues regarding contractors to kind of signal to the general public how they want all workers to be. <laughs> That's it on the minimum wage front. Um, enjoy your extra bucks this year, everyone. <laughs> yeah. So Andy, you were talking a little bit about seasonal workers and tipped workers and non-tipped workers. Seems like there's a lot of classifications of workers under this act. Uh, Laura, do you want to tell us a little bit about worker classification. Yeah, and and that's something that is probably going to be changed up a little bit this year. So worker classification basically comes down to who is an employee of a company and who is a quote independent contractor. And this impacts a lot of things like mm -hmm. whether employees can unionize, whether they are covered by wage discrimination and anti-retaliation laws, and whether they're covered by unemployment insurance. And this is where we get into the sort of the quote unquote gig worker debate. So you've probably heard of gig workers. It's people who are performing usually on demand services like delivery drivers, Uber and Lyft drivers. In 2020, around 57 million people in the US were gig workers. And that's about a third of the workforce. And of course, a lot of those people are part time, but that's still a lot of people. And so the, the standards for when those people have to be treated as employees and when they don't get those benefits is really important. And under the Obama administration, the Department of Labor said that employment 
employment relationships should be determined mostly by whether or to to what degree a worker is economically dependent on their employer and less by the amount of control exerted over them, which was sort of the test previously. And this is often called the economic reality test, which was developed in the 1940s, along with the Federal Labor Standards Act, the National Labor Relations Act and the Social Security Act. In the years since then, the Supreme Court has had to determine from those statutes where the line is between an employee and an an independent contractor. And they sort of came up with a test in Bartels versus Birmingham in 1947, where they explained that employee status can't be determined solely by the idea of how much control the employer has over the details of the services that they're rendering. In Bartels, what was the reasoning there? Yeah, it was primarily just because they, they thought that it didn't really make sense to put the line there because there were people in jobs who clearly were, under all these other factors, employees of, of a given entity but for whatever reason, their their sort of day-to-day stuff, they didn't have a ton of oversight, but they're still employees. It maybe seems like an arbitrary factor to rely on so heavily then. Yeah, so they sort of decided to pivot away from that and say, okay, you know, maybe we should focus more on who is this person depending on for their continued employment. And that continued, you know, well into the Obama administration. The five factors that the Treasury Department came up with was the worker's degree of control over their work, how permanent the employment relationship is, how much the person's work is integrated into the overall business, the skill required and investment by the individual in the facilities for their work, and their opportunity for profit or loss. And so I know some of those sound a little goofy. The integrated into the overall business gets me. Yeah. To me, I think that one is tied sort of to how permanent the employment relationship is. Like, is this a short term gig or is it something, you know, are they are they kind of cycling in and out? That kind of a thing. However, over the years, the various various administrations have focused on different rules. And under the Obama administration's theory, most workers were being classified as employees instead of independent contractors. So it's a very it was a very worker-friendly view, but a lot of businesses weren't super happy about it. So then we get into the Trump administration and we flip-flop a little bit, where in January 2019, the National Labor Relations Board under Trump held that drivers for an airport shuttle service were not employees because they invested in their own vans, they set their own hours, and were ultimately responsible for whether they were working on a profit or a loss. And this decision rolled back that Obama-era rule and made it a lot easier to classify gig workers as independent contractors. Then on January 6th, 2021, which, you know, many of us remember for a vastly different reason that I will not get into right now, but kind of other events overshadowed this, this new rule that Trump's Department of Labor announced on their way out. They announced a new rule that would have taken effect in March that still kind of acknowledged that the ultimate issue here is whether, quote, as a matter of economic reality, the worker is dependent on the business for their continued employment. But they argued that the rule was underdeveloped and inconsistently applied. So they decided, you know what, we're going to focus. We don't like these five factors. We're going to focus on two. And those were the nature and degree of the workers' control over their work and their opportunity for profit or loss. Profit or loss, is that how much what they do results, I don't know, like how good they perform has a result on the overall, like tips, like working for tips, something like similar to that. Like if you take, you know, an Uber driver, for example, how much they get tipped or how much they make in a given day is 
pretty much entirely on them. It's how many hours they are logged into the app, how many rides they pick up, and then yeah, any tips that they make along the way. It's almost entirely in their control. But the implementation of that rule was postponed almost as soon as Biden took office and pretty quickly was withdrawn in March 2021. And then in April of last year, Biden's labor secretary, Marty Walsh, told Reuters that a lot of gig workers should be classified as employees. And they sort of kept making moves in that direction that we expect to continue this year. In December 2021, the National Labor Relations Board asked legal scholars to weigh in on a case that was before the board. Uh, And that one involved a union campaign by makeup artists and hairstylists for the Atlanta Opera. So shout out to your neck of the woods there, baby. So the the background on that is that in June of last year, a regional director for the NLRB said that the workers qualified as employees of the opera company and therefore they could unionize. And of course, the opera company appealed. And so now the national board is asking for amicus briefs, which we've probably talked about amicus briefs before. But if you're not familiar, these are legal briefs that are submitted in a case by people who are not parties to a lawsuit. They're also sometimes called friend of the court. So this is usually where, yeah, like legal experts will weigh in on something and say, this is how we think this case should go. And so the yeah, the NLRB is sort of inviting these opinions and the kind of a public commentary thing on whether it should continue to use the test adopted by the board in 2019 that favored businesses or bring back the Obama era rule that made it more difficult to classify workers as independent contractors. So those briefs are due by February 10, 2021. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But all of this seems to kind of indicate a return to the rules that we saw under Obama, or at least something very similar that more favors workers. So yeah, yeah, that's pretty much all I have on worker classification. But if we sort of flip our mindset back to how much people are making on the flip side of minimum wage, we've got overtime and who qualifies for it, which there are some changes coming up on that too, it sounds like. Yeah, um, overtime is sort of like, you know, the other end of minimum wage in a way. And the FLSA really reflects that the um, Fair Labor Standards Act was kind of it had two major components. One was minimum wage, as Andy covered. But the other big thing that it implemented was this overtime concept. So the overtime rules of the FLSA, they were designed to address a lot of the problems that FDR, who we love, was uh, was facing back in the day, because at that time there was there was a job shortage. And then the people who did have jobs were being exploited often by their employers. So putting in federal overtime regulations would aim to tackle both of these issues, hopefully. Let me give you a little bit of history, though, on the state of the country before the FLSA. Let's go into the way back machine. I love the way, way back machine. Way back to the (laughs) 1700s, um, back when we were still lot of it a lot of us were on the farm a lot of work was agriculturally focused in the country so in that work it was it was a it was a sunrise to sunset kind of system it was people would work like sun up to sundown but take a lot of breaks in the day so like on average they were probably still working like eight hours if you added it up Mm -hmm. but then enter the industrial revolution in the 1800s so then you get factories which unlike farms were expected to run often around the clock and so in turn workers were often expected to work longer like 10 to 16 hour days six days a week so that was in the united states which was kind of slow to reform things other countries in like europe and australia first began passing work reforms and adopting this eight hour work week limit after which 
Illinois became the first state in the U.S. to pass a similar law, but many employers refused to abide by it, and it led to a lot of rioting. The employers were obviously not happy. So then in 1869, President Grant passed the eight-hour law as applied to government workers and also called mm-hmm. for private employers to adopt the same rights for their employees, similar to the minimum wage. You know, governments, we see that pattern of presidents setting the law to, for government workers and hoping that private companies will also follow suit. So in the subsequent decade, decades um, with this support, like organizations like the National Labor Union and other organizations also called for a more uniform adoption of this law. So these eight hour laws slowly started trickling across other public sectors and eventually private sector industries. But it wasn't till the FLSA that there was really a national standard put in place to tackle these labor issues that were still lingering and had been rising in the country. Come FDR's time, under the FLSA, workers, you know, it passed a law that workers must be paid overtime. So workers must be paid one and a half times their regular rate of pay for all hours worked overtime, which was originally defined as 44 hours a week, but soon redefined to 40 hours of a work week, um, unless they fall uh, under an exemption. So they must be paid one and a half times, which we now often call time and a half. Overtime law hoped to tackle these two issues that were going on, the the exploitation of workers and and the job shortage. On the issue of the exploitation of workers, of course, one way people were being exploited was by being overworked in terms of hours. So overtime pay regulations would hopefully serve to discourage employers from overworking their employees because, you know, if they did, they'd have to pay a significantly higher wage rate for those extra hours. And simultaneously, these overtime laws would hopefully tackle the issue of job shortage because since employers didn't want to pay the overtime rate for existing employees but still needed the extra hours worked by somebody, they would end up hopefully hiring additional people to fill in those extra hours and hopefully creating more job opportunities for more individuals. So for example, if a company had one worker doing 60 hours a week before the FLSA kicked in, the FLSA would then incentivize them to hire two workers doing 30 hours of work week each in order to avoid paying that first worker 20 hours worth of overtime pay. So is this how we got like day shift and night shift? Yeah, I suppose. But, you know, those are in certain industries that require, you know, like hospital, like nursing, whatever, that require overnight, like overtime shifts. Yeah, I'm sure it's tied in, in those particular industries that are around the clock for sure. And of course, we talk about, but, but it's, it's also complicated, Laura, because some of those um, day shift, night shift workers are probably exempt. Like if they're, if they're, maybe if they're nurses or in certain professions, they're exempt. So again, over time, these FLSA from the inception um, had exemptions, which means like not all employees are eligible for overtime. And those that weren't eligible for overtime were labeled exempt. So these exemptions were given to employees performing certain duties and making a certain minimum wage threshold. So executive, administrative, and professional exemptions, these are commonly referred to as the white collar exemptions. So today, for example, to qualify for white collar exemptions, employees must perform certain duties. They have to be paid on a salary basis and meet a minimum annual salary threshold. These salary thresholds are kind of like the flip side of the exemptions in that the exemptions would exempt you um, from overtime, but if you made below the salary threshold, overtime was sort of triggered. So like the first salary 
salary threshold was set in 1938 when the law was passed. It was set an annual income of $1,560 a year, but doesn't sound like a lot, but (laughs) adjusted for inflation in today's dollars, that's $29,450 today. And two years later, that was reset to $2,600 annually, which in today's dollars is $49,375 today, which is not far. I mean, it's actually higher than today's yeah. uh, thresholds, which is kind of nuts. And these different thresholds continue to be raised several times over the ensuing decades. At some point, we had other tests for finding exemptions. We had like a long and short test. The long test was like a long list of job duties. And if an employee performed those duties in the long test and like spent less than 20% of their non-exempt work on those duties, um, in addition to having like a lower salary threshold, they were exempt. That, That test basically used a lower salary threshold, but relied more on what duties the employee did to find them exempt. And then there was like another short test that was less picky about what duties the employee did, but had a higher salary threshold that you had to meet in order to be exempt. Um, So those tests were in place for a while, but then in the Bush administration, a single standard was implemented that kind of did away with these um, tests based on duties. So in 2004 under Bush, there was a single standard that was set at a 20, at a salary threshold of $23,660. And that's and that rule just sat and changed for the next 12 years. Then during the Obama administration, the Department of Labor published a rule to raise the overtime salary level threshold for the first time since 2004. They wanted to increase that threshold from Bush's 23,660 annually to 47,476 annually, like doubling it. Which is, which is huge. So that rule under Obama was scheduled to take effect in December of 2016, but 21 states filed an emergency motion in October of 2016 to prevent that rule's enactment. And then just 10 days before it was supposed to be implemented, a federal judge in Texas temporarily blocked it and then later issued a final ruling to permanently block it. So it never went into effect. Then later come the Trump administration, Surprisingly, I guess the Trump administration ultimately increased that minimum salary, not to Obama's 47,000, but still significantly higher to a 35,568 annualized. So still significantly higher than what Bush had set it to. Now the Department of Labor under Biden plans to issue a notice of proposed rulemaking in April of this year of 2022 to raise that salary level um, for the white collar exemptions under the FLSA. I do sort of wonder on some of these, how many people this, I guess, actually impacts because I feel like it seems like most of the time someone who's salaried is going to be already making a lot more than $35,000 a year. You'd think, but I have, you know, like I have had friends who work like, let's say in maybe like nonprofits or government sector jobs that don't, that they, that they make right around those margins. And in fact, I was just having a conversation mm-hmm. with a friend who, when she was working in a nonprofit, she got what she thought was a, prom- I mean, it was a promotion. She got a promotion from something like, I think she was making like whatever it was. She was making just under that salary threshold and she got mm-hmm. a promotion, And but she was getting overtime and she got a mm-hmm. promotion that she was initially happy about until she realized that the company was making that promotion oh. set to just over that threshold so that she oh, could no, no longer report her overtime hours. So yeah, so it can be 
workers can be exploited in that way. Um, and, you know, then they'll be disincentivized to, they'll still have to work over time, but just not be able to report those hours as over time. They're kind of sort of exploited right. to not report them. Yeah. That's interesting. Work your 40 hours, people. <laughs> On paper, <laughs> even if you're working more. I, right. That's that's why that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm glad to be hourly. I can, you know, I can do my 40 hours and be done. Bye, folks. I will put in a shameless plug for Thomson Reuters <laughs> as a place to work, though, because in a different position, I was salaried and not not hourly like I am now. And the expectation, though, was that you did not work, you know, mm-hmm. a minute past 40 hours a week still. Mm-hmm. That is true. We do have a great culture around here. Very different from firms, I will say, because, yeah, the, oh, yeah. The, you know, of course, lawyers and law firms makes tons of money usually. But like in, in many salaried industries, you're not working 40 hours a week. You're working mm-hmm. like often 60. So it's it, yeah. So looking into the current state uh, under or under Biden's DOL, there's still like six Department of Labor positions that need Senate approval, including posts that lead crucial enforcement agencies. So, for example, Biden's pick for wage and hour division administrator is David Weil. That's probably probably going to be a a partisan battle and that could you know delay efforts to take action on two important issues that are up for us this year one of which is like when does an independent contractor qualify as an employee you know that issue of worker classification laura mentioned and another big issue is like in which circumstances are businesses jointly liable for business moves made by contractors or franchisees as norm busting as the prior president was with uh, relying on you know many uh uh, acting directors and secretaries and undersecretaries in certain positions and just not nominating full-time people. Mm-hmm. Um, that appears to be a norm that the current president has also embraced. <laughs> um, and because there's no reason that that these positions shouldn't be filled and confirmed because it only takes 51 votes to confirm a nominee anymore mm-hmm. uh, because the filibuster for nom- for any executive nominee is is, has been eliminated. All, all Joe Biden has to do is take a take a test poll of the Senate Democratic Caucus of who's who's fine and who isn't, and if they're fine, then get them confirmed. Yeah, <laughs> I <that> like <laughs> got stuff to do. A, Let's go. It's, <laughs> it's it is it is pretty as someone for someone who like values competence and whatever in government and thinks that a lot of problems are really just like a matter of like an incompetent administrative state making life harder for people. It's a year later. Yeah. Mr. President. <laughs> folks. <laughs> <laughs> folks. Yeah, folks. Their nominations are pending is the status. Like, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's like if the buck is currently with the Senate and it's been sitting with the Senate or. Typically, yeah, if someone's been nominated and no action has been taken, uh, the the fault rests with probably the White House for not uh, kicking butts and for whatever the relevant Senate committee is for not moving forward. Usually, usually it means that someone behind the scenes, probably someone in the caucus, because they can't afford to lose a vote on most of these, on a lot, on some of these like highly partisan nominees, like the guy you were just talking about. David Weil. Yeah, you can't, you essentially cannot lose a vote if you assume that no Republicans are going to vote for that person. Is that the case? Okay, if that's the case, find someone who's palatable yeah. and move on. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's because all it's doing is delaying action. Correct. But I guess we'll see. Hopefully, these seats will be filled, and hopefully, these laws will be rolled back into place in a more employee-friendly manner later this year. As a as a as a fellow employee, <laughs> I right, concur. Yeah. yeah, I suppose we are a little biased since none of us are business owners. We- 
<laughs> so it is important to, yeah, it's important to acknowledge that. But yeah, it, it definitely will be interesting to see, yeah, what this year holds as far as labor and employment. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. In 2020, around 57 people, 57 people, Jesus. <laughs> that's it. Only 57. Only 57 gig workers yep, in the it. country. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to do that again.